What's up? It's your pal, Wanshika Sardicus, and this is The Bar is Low. Every episode, we take a look at a fanfiction or a series of fanfictions, and these can be either good, bad, or in between, but mostly, they bad. Well, fellas, the joy and happiness of three lighthearted episodes in a row is over, and now it's back to your regularly scheduled program. So this isn't going to be a totally disturbing episode about disgusting porn. There isn't even a sex scene in this fic, yet I have kind of complicated feelings about this one that we're covering today, and I have alluded to it in past episodes. To be specific, my What Were You Thinking series. Much like I have compared the fanfic we're talking about today to the works I discussed in that series, it's pretty much impossible for me to talk about this pairing we're doing. Yes, Jose Katara, we're doing another one of those which is my no TP, by the way. I consider it to be the worst non-incest pairing in the fandom. Um, and I can't talk about that pairing without talking about Adam of the Moon, who is insane. So I will be comparing this fic to her works in spite of the atrocious pairing, which is the reason I clicked on this fic in the first place, because I was like, what the fuck? Overall, I did think this was well-written and well-executed. So... Yeah, believe it or not, there's a fic of this pairing that I actually enjoy. And I guess that just goes to show that if you write anything the right way, it can have value to it. So let's talk about this person's writing style today. We're going to be doing one full-length fic. It's about 150,000 words long, so that's still significantly shorter than any of Adam's writing. But I will still be going in-depth with it. Don't worry, we're not breaking it up into two episodes. Everything's getting done in this one episode today. So this author knows how to use the English language. And I mean, her writing isn't like the most impressive thing ever, but especially compared to the other shit I've read where people don't even proofread because the bar is just that low. My mind is blown that the writing in this fic actually has quality to it. So many of her descriptions of nature are so aesthetic too. And this is actually genuinely good writing. A command of the English language is above average. And so is the understanding of narrative structure. Even if we're going to judge it neutrally, without comparing it to the stuff I've covered that has lowered my standards so much. But let's get into this, and of course I'll be analyzing this fic as I work my way through it and explain why I actually enjoyed it. The premise of this is, yeah, it's another Katara gets kidnapped sort of fic, which I think is really contrived, but the way this is done, it's a little bit different, and I feel like it's almost poking fun at that type of fic, because usually you see that with the Zutara, but not today, motherfuckers! <sighs> The beginning is easily the weakest part of the fic, in my opinion. It's basically just teen drama, and, you know, it's pretty typical at first, but things pick up once Ozai enters the picture a few chapters in. We kick off the story with the gang just chilling out on Ember Island. It's pretty much their vacation time, and it's been two years after the war, and there's a celebration going on with, like, fireworks and shit. So everyone's off to do their separate things, which leaves Zuko and Katara alone together. Guys, PSA, if you absolutely must write a Katara Ozai fic, do not put Zutara in it also. You already have to break her up with Aang. But then, secondly, more importantly, in my opinion, you're just making it so much more awkward than it needs to be. Because she leaves him for his father. <sighs> I don't understand why people do this, honestly. It's hilarious, but it's also like, why? 
So, oh no, Katara's just been catching more and more feels for Zuko as the months go by, and she's just like, we're just friends, I'm clearly misinterpreting these platonic feelings I have for him, and I love Aang too, like, you know, I love Aang, like, yay for one, no one. They all join up again once the fireworks are over. May is there, but she has to go off to bed because she must be disposed of for Zutara to happen. Toph is like, let's play a drinking game, and then just pulls out a huge bottle of booze out of nowhere. They actually play Never Have I Ever, and basically the reason for this is because Toph is doing this to be a little bitch, seeing as she knows what's up with Katara's confusing romantic feelings and wants to kind of expose her. So they play so hard, it's like they're totally directing shit at each other, like, Never Have I Ever been blind never have i ever died never have i ever been banished from my country never have i ever watched my mother get murdered by fire nation soldiers never have i ever gotten my face burned off by my abusive father never have i ever been a pussy bitch who refused to kill a warmongering dictator which is the whole reason this bit can exist and katara can get eaten out by aforementioned warmongering dictator slash abusive father Anyways, but uh, one I like is never have I ever made out with a jet. Katara's just like, tough. how do you know about that? And she's like, I, I, I didn't. This is a quote from Sokka. My baby sister, did he deflower you? And she doesn't even answer. <laughs> this fic really wants you to think that she's a hoe. But my favorite one is never have I ever overheard or caught my parents having sex. Because apparently Zuko has walked in on his parents having sex. Way to continue making things awkward, considering that we all know where this is eventually going to go. But I just wanted so badly for him to chug the entire bottle of booze to drink away the memory. But the point of this scene is really the last question, which Toph asks, have you ever had feelings for two people at once? Which Katara is like all awkward about, so everyone's starting to figure out shit is up not just Toph who's been manipulating things up to this point pretty much so you know you have some nice teen drama here and things are gonna go escalate with that but don't worry we're gonna get to the insanity soon the next chapter begins with May being really jealous and as she walks outside Aang is just standing there alone so they talk about their significant others probably cheating on them and Guys, I think it's only fair, considering the popularity of Zutara, that people not be disgusted of May and Aang as a parent. Like, that doesn't happen in this fic. They don't get together or anything. But I've seen people totally freak out over that pairing and, like, be disgusted by it. That's not even a bad pairing, like, especially compared to what we're talking about today, kids. But, oh my god, during this scene, Aang gets so worried and jealous that he almost goes into the Avatar state. Oh my god, chill, bro. I know it sucks, but, like, chill. Meanwhile, our lovers are heading down to a secret place that Zuko wants to show her and he's being all angsty like I used to come here a lot back when my family was still happy it's like a crystal cave so I presume it's not unlike the one they were in at the end of season 2 but it's just so romantic that they start making out and she's just like now this is real love I guess I never really loved Aang like this but I am loving this this is the shit the emotions that go along with this are actually written really well and conveyed in a way that we can like experience the epiphany alongside her but oh shit it's me and again, like, her feelings are written really well, too. She's jealous as fuck, but she's also on her way right now to find him so they can end their relationship. And here's this short passage. 
It had been years since she had walked the hills of this green paradise behind the beach house. She had often accompanied Zuko and his family on their vacations back when things were happier and less complicated. She had spent many summers strolling hand in hand along the undulating landscape with Zuko that seemed like ages ago now, like different life almost. The tapestry of those days had been unraveled and woven back together haphazardly, transformed into an image she no longer recognized. How had things gone so wrong? So people really overused that it felt like a lifetime ago or like in a different life sort of thing. But I like how this author follows it up with the tapestry metaphor, which I feel like really works because it's so specific to their situation. Because, you know, they're doing the same thing that they used to do so many years ago, but both of them have changed so much over the course of Zuko's banishment and the two years that followed afterwards that it isn't the same as it was. But, you know, she's having her little contemplation, but then she she walks in on them, making out in that cave, and <laughs> the narration refers to Katara as a water wench and I fucking love how this author uses the word wench for obvious reasons. It's your pal wench against Thonicus. So she interrupts their little makeout session and she's like I knew it. And Zuko's like but 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 I was gonna tell you and she's like liar you're too much of a little bitch. So then uh, yeah they officially break up and now that may help them she has to tell Aang and oh my god poor baby. Like everyone else is so oblivious like wow I can't believe Katara would do that except for Toph who knew all along so they're all like bitch why didn't you tell us? So May asks Aang to borrow Appa and then she goes home to her family stopping on the way to bitterly throw away her betrothal necklace to Zuko that she wore every day even when he was banished that says eternal love on it. Wow Zuko you're such a little bitch. Neither of you even had the decency to tell your exes that you were going to fuck each other. God. But now that we have all this tension and rage and action, it's time for your boy to enter the story. Because apparently, Oza here, his plan is to escape from prison. And that all depends on the teen drama that's going down. Or more accurately, his plan depends on Zuko being a fucking idiot. So, uh, one of his guards, Jiao, uh, I don't know how you'd pronounce it, but that's how I'm gonna say it, who's still faithful to him, because his wife is dying, and it was like has promised him a reward he can use to buy medicine if he helps him. This guard has been watching the kids over the last few days, and saw May throw away the necklace, so yeah, now he knows what's up. So now knowing this, Ozai sends May a letter, and she's like, that bitch, what does he want from me? But she decides to meet up with him anyway. Now, arriving in prison, He's really creepy towards her, and here's something that she says to him. If you think you can seduce me with that silver tongue of yours, you can forget it. I may have nearly succumbed to that before, but it won't happen again. Oh my god. Oh my god, Zuko, get your shit together. Your dad is seducing all of your girlfriends. Oh my god, get it together. But I do find this really interesting in a way, and let me explain. It is obvious that he preys on teenage girls, and some people are crazy and think that's not fucked up at all, but the way that this is played, the author knows it's bad, which is a really basic thing I feel like everyone should know, but the bar is so low that they fucking don't. So they're already establishing that he's a bit of a pedophile. Like, okay, could be worse. He could be pursuing really young kids, but this is still very bad. What I find especially interesting about this situation is that in this fic, in addition to May already being underage, so you already have that going, this author has only aged Katara up by two years, not four. In other ones I've read, and the Moon's writing piece specific, she always ages up Katara by four years, so that she's 18, which I guess in her mind justifies the wildly inappropriate age gap between them. But this author doesn't do that. Katara is 16, 
underage. The author isn't trying to hide that this is actually a fucked up relationship. Now again, because the internet's just like that, a lot of people would just be okay with that anyways, but there's plenty more evidence ahead that this author, you know, maybe ships it theoretically, but knows that it wouldn't end well, or start well, or just go well at all. Uh, yeah. So I just find that kind of interesting, and it kind of hints how, yeah, this isn't gonna go down well. But let's get back to the story. Ozu just pulls out the necklace that she threw away, and he's like, I'm up on all the latest gossip, bitch. Oh my god, girl, Zuko, such a dumbass for dumping you. He don't deserve you, girl. Mm. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of one of the fics we did in episode 19, where it was like entirely we're besties, and, and they did each other's nails and shit, just saying. But she's like, okay, why did you really call me here? I know you don't actually want to gossip or whatever, and he's just like, uh get me out of prison. I mean, like, before news gets out that you're not with Zuko anymore, you still have lots of authority, so, like, it'll be great revenge on him. Come on, what do you say? She's like, fuck you, I'm not doing that. But wait, there's more. He tells her that he can dispose of Katara so that she can punish Zuko without anyone else getting in the way. And then he's like, ah, yes, I bet I could hold her for ransom. Because even though she's a cheating bitch, the Avatar still loves her in some capacity and might give me back my bending if I return her to him unharmed. <laughs> my evil plan is falling into place. Now this is what gets me to agree. She does not give a fuck that she's about to release a world-class criminal from jail. All she wants is to make Zuko and Katara pay for their sins. So the breaking out of prison thing goes down she just sneaks a key into the prison and they dress him up as a guard and fly out. He's super bitter about having to wear a helmet as a kind of a disguise, but I love how it's not even an option for them to consider cutting off his hair or his beard. Like, you just can't. It seems like kind of an unwritten law of fanfic to me. So they head back to Ember Island in the middle of a dramatic storm, of course, and May shows up where they're all chilling and Zuko's like, something's wrong here. Why is she back? But she wants to talk things through and get closure somewhere private with Katara there too. At least that's what she says. <laughs> Here's a quote. May could hold a grudge the way a skilled architect could construct a building or a proficient painter could bring life to a blank canvas. Resentment was her true art medium and she was a master. <laughs> so we all know something's fucky here. May goes off to talk to Zuko alone first, leaving Katara all alone, except for Pito McFirefuck waiting for the right moment to make a move on her. Again, this author is really good about setting a mood, even though, you know, rain in a dramatic situation is pretty cliche, but she's able to do so much more than that by kind of fleshing out the details of not only the storm, but also the setting of the grove and how isolated it is that May has taken them to. But now that she's alone, Ozai goes after her. She puts up a bit of a fight but then she's like, oh my god, it's Zuko's dead. What the fuck is he doing here? And he takes advantage of her surprise to overwhelm her. So Zuko hears her screaming and freaks the hell out, but before Ozai escapes, he's able to learn that, yeah, it is him who's behind this, and he's like, may you bitch, you set us up. And she realizes just how hard she got played and feels bad and has a bit of a change of heart. I have said this before, but I feel like the Katara getting kidnapped plotline is very contrived. I mean, a lot of the characters get kidnapped in some sort of way in the show. If I remember correctly, she was never one of them, but maybe everyone just thinks that it's her turn. I do feel like this is a bit different, though, considering that it's not kidnapping for the sake of Zukatara, even though it's for the sake of something much worse. So in a way, I feel like it's almost a mockery of that. But anyways, 
Everyone who has not been kidnapped reconvenes at the beach house. Panic ensued. Aang blames Zuko for all the shit that happened and May gets handcuffed to a post. So Aang goes off on his glider to find Katara and he's just like, why am I doing this? I should forgive her, but like also she's a bitch, so no. You know, it wouldn't really make sense for him to kidnap her and then just kill her immediately. So I'm going to wait on it. She should probably suffer a little bit. Not like I'll find them in this weather either. So this kid can refuse to kill Ozai, which is truly the root cause of this whole situation. But he's like, you know what? I care about my ex, but like, I want her to suffer a little for cheating on me. Because, you know, who knows? She could be getting raped right now for all I care. He knows what he should do, but he's letting his anger cloud his moral compass. This is kind of out of character, but... That's the point of that, and we'll get back to it later. He descends pretty far into depravity over the course of the fic. Like, no one's totally fucked up, neither is anyone perfectly good. And it's pretty interesting to see this kind of unexplored aspect of his character. Meanwhile, in this fic, we do get to see that it was like, you know, isn't pure fucking evil because he's a fucking human being. By no means would I call it a role reversal what happens between them, but I think it's an interesting contrast here. But, like, Aang's super pissed off at Zuko, and Zuko's just like, go back and find her, you didn't try hard enough and Aang's like bitch this is all your fault here's a quote if he looked at the firebender for one more minute his avatar state was going to unleash itself in a way that would make his battle with Ozoi look like child's play jesus bruh shit man so then the rest of the squad just comes back from having like a jolly old time in the middle of the super tense scene which is super awkward but then they all end up going to search again so let's get some important information out of the way. So what is Ozai going to do now that he's escaped from jail? So he's on a boat headed to the Earth Kingdom and he just threw Katara in the hold. They do have a short exchange where he reveals that he knows that she cheated on Aang. And she's just like, what the fuck? How do you know that? How are you all up on the latest gossip? But it's MacGuffin time. So his goal here is to find a book that he knows uh, was written by a sage who worked to unravel the mysteries of the Avatar, and if he can find, quote, a loophole in the cosmos, then he can take away the Avatar power from Aang and become God and take over the world. So this seems kind of rushed because the author just suddenly threw some new rules into the universe. Maybe if they'd found a way to tie in the existence of this book during the beginning of the fic, it would make a smooth appearance here, but no, suddenly it just shows up. This whole aspect of the plot, I feel, is really underemphasized, and it doesn't really get brought up all of that much, considering how important it is. It also raises some questions about the logic behind how this would work. I don't think you'd be able to become the avatar part where they're your life you have to be born as it right like because it's a cycle of reincarnation you can't be reincarnated while you're still alive right like even if the avatar spirit can't do that would it change you as a person would you like meld your soul to other people i who knows but here's another thing that seems kind of manufactured to me so a stowaway manages to get on board the ship and he's just like hmm tasty teenage girl down here for me to rape but ozai shows up and he's just like please get off my fucking boat the dude is scared shitless and he's like sir i mean no harm <laughs> and then what he says back is this so i guess you consider rape to be something of no harm oh my god <laughs> and then he throws him off the side of the ship and i guess he dies but oh katara is just like oh my god he saved me from being raped am i grateful to him but i can't let that make me think there's good in him 
The events of this chapter did seem a little forced, but, you know, she has to build a little bit of trust and get some sense that he's not pure evil. What he did was really about him being possessive, not wanting his hostage or really his property to get damaged, and he's pissed that someone tried to get a free ride out of him. But uh, in the next chapter, she does thank him when he comes down to give her food, but he, yeah, he's like, yeah, I don't really care about you or your well-being. It's just that you're of no use to me if you're injured. Meanwhile, everyone is just silently angsting in the throne room, and Sokka just casually tries to kill Zuko in a fit of rage. None of them has found any trace of Oza yet, but there's a warrant out for his arrest, and the water tribes are going to join in the search. They decide to split up, some will continue the search now, while others will wait until Dakota shows up to leave. But meanwhile... That night, the ship hits a rock and starts to go down. This scene actually frustrates me so much, because even though it sets in motion Ozai's plans to seduce her to the dark side, quite literally seduce her to the dark side, what Katara does makes me just scream like you would do when a character in a horror movie goes into somewhere you obviously know the monster or whatever's going to be hiding, and you're just like, idiot, you fucking idiot, don't do that. So she's like, yep, I got out of my bindings. I can use my bending again to get back to the shore. All set. I can escape. But, and this makes me so frustrated. She sees Ozai passed out on the sinking ship. And she's like, I mean, technically I owe him my life. So she takes him with her to safety. Oh my god, Katara, you fucking idiot. You goddamn fool. You absolute buffoon. You fucking nincompoop. (laughs) Oh my god. So... She also, although less purposefully, saves his subordinate, Jiao, who's still another one of her captors. Uh, Like, okay, I get that it's one thing if you have the upper hand and you're going to save someone who you don't like, but she's in a bad position and she's rescuing her captor and in doing so, abandoning all hopes of rescue. Not to mention that everyone is worried sick about her, so in a way it's more selfish than anything else to save him because no one's gonna miss him, but everyone's worried about her. But she lays there on the beach, her head on his chest, because fuck you, that's how they landed. And she's like, well, he's not breathing, so now what? So she bends the water out of his lungs, but that's not enough. By the way, guys, this is actually kind of an important thing. Even if you do survive almost drowning, although it's kind of rare, the fluid in your lungs can kill you afterwards, so you should still go to an emergency room if you experience these symptoms of dry drowning or secondary drowning, and those are difficulty breathing or speaking, chest pain, coughing, and fatigue. Stay safe, kids. The more you know. But let's get back to what's happening. Here's a direct quote from Katara's internal monologue. Either the spirits really want him to die, or they're trying to see how far I'll take this everyone's deserves a chance concept. So. So. She's like, huh. Well, I guess I have to do mouth to mouth. I really don't want to do this, but it would appear that there's no other way. Credit for her really not wanting to do it, though. But just as she's about to do it, he wakes up, so thank fuck for that. This little scene really does make you think that the romance here is going to go way faster than it actually does, but thankfully, that's not true. Things do not escalate quickly like that again. In fact, they go, like, agonizingly slow. This is a slow, slow burn, and I like it for that. It takes them many chapters to get that close to kissing again, so... Yay, I guess. But when he wakes up, he's just like, what are you even doing? And she's like, you 
owe me my freedom for saving you and he's like hmm i mean i saved you earlier so we're even now and i owe you nothing katara seriously what the fuck did you expect so the next morning we come to understand just how fucked our little trio of random guard oc too nice for her own good and lord asshole are the wreck set them really off course and they lost all their supplies too Jose is just pondering the previous night and he's like oh my god i'm mortal and i don't like it also why did that girl save me because she's stupid that's why actual quote she probably believed foolishly that no man was beyond redemption not even himself <laughs> he's just like yep i'm the master of evil and i know it because in a case like this a lot of other dictators and you know bad people a lot of the time think that they're doing the right thing when they're committing various atrocious crimes against humanity but i was like just i guess he just wants to be the chaos god and destroy the world and he's like yeah i'm just doing this because i'm evil not because i think i'm doing the right thing or anything <laughs> So he has been manipulating people left and right this whole fig, and we're not even that far into it. So now he's starting to think, hmm, I can totally manipulate this girl into trusting me. So I cannot stress this enough. This author is self-aware, and that's why I think this is actually a good fic. She knows that he's a piece of shit and will manipulate her. She doesn't genuinely think that this is a good ship, or even if she does like the concept of it, she knows that it wouldn't end well. And I really can't stress that enough about this fic, that it's not a genuine ship, and that makes all the difference to me. Okay, maybe not all of the difference, considering the actual writing is high quality, and they also don't have these together, so that's always a plus for me. Katara basically gets brainwashed in this fic, and she gets Stockholm Syndrome. This is a fic about mind games and the line between redeemable and beyond saving more than it is a romance, I think. Uh, we do get a bit of back and forth between their perspectives, uh, so they usually bind her wrists, but not this time. So she's like, maybe it's a small way of him saying thanks for me saving his life. But this comes right to his perspective, and he has knowingly done this to manipulate her into beginning to trust him. Here's a quote. Jose knew that any act of non-hostility from her captor would translate as an act of kindness in her prisoner mindset. That's straight-up brainwashing. That is a straight-up brainwashing technique. Abusers can be blind to the effects of their actions on those they're abusing and have unclear intent, but everything he does is really calculated and precise in this fic. In other fics of this pairing, Ozzy's intents are not made clear in any sort of way, and it seems like he's abusing her for the sake of abusing her, really. In those, he was a fucking dumbass, but here you can tell that he's actually intelligent and has great attention to detail. His intentions are clearly stated and explicit in this fic. It's not subtle but it doesn't need to be because it's interesting to get inside of his head so they start traveling and there's this scene where they're just you know they're getting settled in for the night there's nothing sexual that happens here you guys despite that phrasing she's just sitting there super awkwardly while the third guy the guard goes off into the woods to find food leaving them alone and she's just being suffocated by her own discomfort like please i don't want to be alone with him for the love of god a random guard whose name i literally just learned come back please it's pretty great too because she's watching him miserably struggle to make a campfire she's just like heh irony <laughs> but it's just 
too awkward for her to sit there, so she has to engage in awkward, awkward conversation with him. There's a lot of emphasis on how he won't call her by her name, it just addresses her as waterbender or girl, which he later uses to manipulate her, and I think that's really interesting, but it's not really a focus right now. It kind of just comes back in a subtle way. She asks him why he needs her for whatever plan he has, and he's all bitchy about it, but she's like, the Avatar will rescue me, even though I cheated on him because he is a good person. God damn it, I was like, have you ever experienced love in your fucking life? Then you'd understand, but you've been a total psychopath up to this point, and all you've done is manipulate people without giving a fuck about the effects it will have on them. And he's like, you don't understand me, peasant. There's more to me than you think. Like, actually, though, he does the whole you don't understand me thing, and I guess we know why Zuko's so emo now. He basically gives her, like, a super abbreviated version of his life story, and he was like, I was an accident, and I was never supposed to be born. My father never loved me and everyone liked my brother more. Also, I loved my wife. Fuck you. So, saying that he loved his wife is basically the easiest thing you can do to humanize him. If you're trying to humanize him, that's really just a simple way to do it. And it works here. He has a genuine moment of emotional vulnerability and he hasn't shown a hint of empathy or sadness yet. And it's not like his sob story excuses him for any of his action, which he does admit and he says he's also, he's not apologizing for anything he did, but he's actually kind of humanized here and it's the first time this has happened so far. So Katara isn't really sure what he's doing and it crosses her mind that he might be manipulating her, but she's just confused by him. I feel like this scene further underscores how the romance is actually kind of secondary and the big focus is on mind games and redemption versus permanent evil. He continues to be nice to her by letting her get a new dress at the market because her other one got ripped when the stowaway tried to rape her and he splits his food with her and we're like, whoa, what? And it's really interesting to try to pick out just how much of this is genuine and how much is manipulation. Because when he was talking to Katara about his background, she kept noticing how genuine and truthful he sounded. No one's quite sure what's going on with his character. Not, not even he's sure what's going on right here, but it takes away some of the mystery when we get his perspective, which is that his plan went perfectly, uh, but he was also being honest with her when he spoke. But then things go a little bit backwards when they run some guards on their way to, into town the next day, and the guards realize who they found, and then Ozai stabs them both to death, strategically, mind you. So Katara's just like, well, fuck. Right, uh, he's like that. But it's double well fuck time, because Jiao, the guard, leaves the party, so she's alone with Ozai. She's like, yep, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. They go to the market, and here's where Katara's just like, fuck this shit, I'm out. He's trying to keep an eye on her, but he's not trying hard enough so she makes a run for it but he ends up catching her and he basically just says don't try that shit again or i'm gonna put you in your fucking place so meanwhile we're gonna get back to the squad now ang and tuff are chilling out together they're on the hunt for her tuff takes him to her hometown to talk to a few of her shady black market friends because that's who you hang out with when you're a 12 year old but one of them is able to tell them about the shit that went down at the market we get to Sokka, Zuko, and Hakoda, which is actually a pretty amusing scene here because Hakoda has to talk to Zuko about the part that Zuko's horniness indirectly played in Katara's abduction. They start off with some small talk and Zuko's just like, get it over with, just ring my neck already because there haven't been enough uncomfortable scenes in the last two chapters. Oh, here's a quote. Just keep in mind that this is my little girl we're talking about. Do this old man a favor and keep your teenage hormone-driven hands to yourself, will ya? I'd hate to have to sever one of those pretty royal fingers because I found out my baby's purity had been compromised. 
Zuko's heart stopped mid-beat as every muscle in his body tightened at once. He could not fend off the mortified expression that quickly spread across his face. This had officially become the single most humiliating moment of his entire life. I'm just teasing you, Hakoda chuckled, slapping Zuko on the back. Oh, you should have seen the look on your face. It took a moment for Zuko to recover from the mild shock. I think mild shock is a little, uh, it was a little more than mild, but... What? Was he supposed to find that amusing or just be really, really relieved? Just he had regained enough willpower to force a half-hearted chuckle and try to smile. Hakoda resumed his stone face expression and added, but seriously. Zuko could do nothing but stare at the cracks in the wood, his eyes wide in disbelief. What he would not give for the spirits just to smite him now and put an end to his humiliation. Hakoda is the daddest dad ever. He's just the dadliest dad. The ultimate dad. Trademark. He's so good. But we get back to our main plotline, where they're settling in for the night. Katara gets a little angsty, because apparently she lost her necklace in the marketplace scuffle, and she's like, I was like, why did you kill all those people? You really didn't have to do that. Seriously, what do you think you're gonna accomplish with this? He tells her to move her sleeping mat right next to his so he can better keep an eye on her so she doesn't try to escape again, which leads to another super awkward situation. He calls her peasant so many times during the scene, which I love. He's such an asshole in this, but in such a funny way. <laughs> he says, apparently I need to be more specific to cater to your inferior peasant understandings when she wouldn't move them that close enough. It sounds like me trying to explain polyrhythms to some 4-4 pleb, though. <laughs> Here's another quote. If this is some sleazy attempt to try and take advantage of me, you better think again. Her sapphire eyes were smoldering and she no longer cared to keep her defiance in check. She was met only with the same scornful, mocking chuckle and that arrogant expression, which then quickly diminished into a condescending glower. Allow me to make two things inescapably clear to you, peasant. He began, his voice assuming a grave and severe tone. And I will speak slowly, so you will be sure to understand. First of all, do not dare take such a tone with me, girl. I have been exceedingly merciful with you so far, and it would be most unwise to further try my patience, as it is wearing very thin. Under any other circumstances, someone in your position would be dead. I have killed people for far less. Understand that. Arrogant sneer now mingled with his more severe countenance as he continued in a salacious tone. Secondly, do not flatter yourself. A woman of such a lowly stature could only hope to dream of a man such as myself desiring her. Perhaps you should examine your own desires before making such accusations to ensure that you are not projecting your fantasies upon others. Fuck! <laughs> He's Oh my god. I'm screaming, guys. Oh my god. He's so over it. I can't. So, oh my god, guys. So, even though we all know, and the author knows, that the ship isn't supposed to work out, he never sexually assaults her, or even tries to, or even considers it. Guys, take some fucking notes if you're writing this pairing. He doesn't try to sexually assault her. Yes, good. The bar's low. 
we already know that he's a sexual predator because he already tries to seduce May and he's eventually gonna get with a 16 year old girl but he doesn't commit sexual assault oh my god is the bar ever so low but it is kind of nice that this author applies to all the reviews in an and before each chapter and she thinks that yeah he wouldn't rape her he prefers to slowly fuck with someone's mind until they give in instead of to quote quickly physically breaking them but Ozai's lying awake and he's like why did I actually act without ulterior motives like one time ever when I told her my life story or whatever I guess I don't completely hate her and I don't want to treat her like complete shit what's wrong with me why am I opening up to a teenage girl sure can't be because I'm a pedophile the next morning he's thinking to himself you know my son is a total failure but I guess I understand what he saw in this peasant I mean she's kind of hot as I know <laughs> don't but he also happens to have picked up her necklace that she lost in the scuffle, and he's like, fantastic, another tool for manipulation. Clearly, she loves this piece of jewelry for whatever reason. He gives it back to her, but she freaks out because he had it this whole time and he was just hiding it, and she knows that he's using it to manipulate her in some way. She's just not sure what, what it is precisely that he wants. But it's Stockholm Syndrome time, kids. He's pissed off that she's pissed off, which leads to a very tense moment in which they are very close to each other, and she notices that his hands are very soft. And he smells like firewood burning in the crisp air of autumn, and that oh fuck, he's hot. And she gets that all too familiar feeling of fluttering in her stomach, and she's just like, oh fuck, no, you've, you've, you've gotta be kidding me, you fucking kidding me right now, right? He's evil, right? He, he's, he's evil. Is, isn't he? Isn't he? Is he evil? And the next day, too, she's all like, you know, he hasn't murdered me or anything, plus he gave me back my necklace to manipulate me into liking him, which is working. Maybe he's not such a bad dude. I also am definitely developing a case of Stockholm Syndrome. She gets to pitying him and how he lost himself to evil, and she knows that he loved once. And, like, there's some ex-wife angst that she brings up to him, and she asks if he wants to be able to experience that again because someone else was able to see the good in him. So, although this fic is well written and I haven't had that many complaints, I am still very uncomfortable when he starts noticing little romantic things about her and like shit like that. Like he loses his temper and pins her to a tree, but he's like, hmm, I can't bring myself to punish her. Oh, we're very close right now. She has pretty eyes and smells like water lilies. Why can they both describe what other humans smell like? I, I can't. I don't know anyone who can. Especially the firewood burning in crisp autumn air. That's really specific, I just saying. But he's like, fuck, I don't like having feelings. Feelings are for the weak. Another victim of toxic masculinity, you guys. Bro, it's okay to have emotions besides rage and smugness. It really is. And then she falls on him once he puts her down. And this fucking like he says this. Am I that magnetic? Or are you that desperate? Perhaps all this talk of love is a mask for insufficiency. Is my failure of a son not satisfying you? <laughs> I'm fucking howling. <laughs> Seriously, his dialogue like this is what makes all the awkward advances in their relationship bearable. And he's like, you're blushing, by the way. And she's freaking the fuck out. Oh my god. It's so painful, but hilarious quite honestly. <laughs> Next we get a scene with Toph and Aang, which I think is also really interesting given the, I don't know, could I call it character development with Ozai, and how this kind of runs parallel to it. Toph is just fed up with Aang and provokes him into a little meltdown. She was hoping that a temper tantrum would kind of get it all out of his system, but it doesn't work like that here today. She's just like, buddy, twinkle toes, baldy boy, cream puff, 
Aang, this is beyond mere relationship drama. You gotta help me out here. We gotta catch Lord Mexican food poop. And he's like, well, fuck Katara. Maybe I can't. Maybe she's getting justice. So if you were thinking, yeah, Aang is out of character at the beginning, well, yeah, that's the point, because Hoff recognizes, hey, something's wrong here. He's not acting right. Dark Aang is on the way in. Zuko's also on the search, and they go to June, but her, like, sniffy mole rat thing is dead, so she sends them to someone else. This person who's gonna help them now is called Genshi. She's a conjurer who reluctantly agrees to help them. She has the ability to create visions out of thoughts, which is hard to explain except through examples. So, for instance, if uh, Zuko thinks of Katara, Genshi will be able to get a vision on where she is now, but her power is limited to immediate surroundings, and she doesn't, like, know their exact location, just kind of the general direction of it. So it's not that convenient. She also has the ability to see auras, and after they've been fruitlessly trying to track Ozai and Katara down, and it's not working very well, they take a break and try looking at Aang and Hoff through the vision, and Kenshi's all like, oh, fuck, uh, Aang's passed out in the spirit world from meditating, but his aura is red, and that's an evil people color. So they decide to meet up with Toph because, you know, they're not going to be able to defeat Ozai if Aang's turning evil. Uh, we get this scene of Aang in the spirit world meeting with the spirit of desolation and sadness. Its name is Jakku, uh, kind of like the Star Wars planet, I guess. I'm just going to pronounce it like that, which I guess that planet is also desolate as fuck, so makes sense. Basically, Jakku tells him, your revenge? Revenge is good. Your feelings? You're valid. Basically, the spirit is enchanting him to keep him in the spirit world. So when the two halves of the gang converge, they try to awaken him, but Jakku is making it so that he's stuck there, and they're probably going to have to fight Ozai alone without him. Now, Jakku's motivations here are basically that because he's the god of destruction or something, he wants Ozai to destroy the world, and he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that happens. So you like insane awkwardness, because don't worry, there's more of that. So we get back to our main pairing. Katara wants to take a bath, and he accidentally catches sight of her, mostly naked and all wet, and I don't think I need to go into detail here. Oh my god, bro, she's 16, you're not even going to talk about that part? Oh my god, y'all. And uh, that night she's watching him sleep and thinking about how peaceful and also how hot he looks. And it says that her heart fluttered gently twice. She reaches out to touch his buff arm and then he wakes up. <laughs> but they're really crunching to get to wherever the hell they're going anyways. And she's just like, your evil plans won't work. Also, Zuko will find me. And he's not like you. But he tells her that Zuko cheated on me with Tylee and also various other girls. First of all, Tylee is gay for Azula. Secondly, Katara, you have no fucking right to think that you've got the moral high ground. Not only did you cheat on Aang, but now you're going to leave Azuko for, of all people, his father. So she's pissed off. And since they're in a rainstorm, she figures it's a perfect time to use her upper hand bending uh, to escape. But he catches her because he's faster. He tries to fucking stab her, but she makes an ice shield just in time. But the real significance here is that he's been getting her to doubt that her friends are actually going to come for her at all. He tells her, like, who are you going to run to? Your prepubescent ex-boyfriend doesn't love you. My son has women flinging themselves at him. You really think you're special to him? I'm the only one here for you now. She knows that he's still trying to manipulate 
annihilate her and she tries to run again but he catches her and then he carries her off like she's one of those like stereotypical hobo sticks you guys know the ones i'm talking about they arrive in old ban house where uh ozai leaves her for the night to go look for the MacGuffin that hasn't been mentioned since it was first introduced like 10 chapters ago he finds the book and there's some coordinates as to where the cosmos is torn open just enough for ozai to energy bend himself into avatardom all he has to do is get ang there so katara's all tied up in that house so like how's she gonna run but well fuck oh no there are people there and they find her and they're just like oh let's sell her into the slave trade and she's like you know never thought i'd say this in my fucking life but i sure wish i wish i was here but some time passes and he does return eventually and he's like what the fuck you doing with her you fucking motherfuckers the lead slave trade motherfucker is like excuse me but i don't think you know who you're dealing with and he's like I don't think you know who you're dealing with. Do I know you from somewhere? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that girl kind of young to be your girlfriend? See, thank you for pointing this out, human trafficker. See, he gets it. He gets it. So Ozai then calls him a worthless, vomitous mass. Damn, boy got insult game. But he lets him go without killing him, which was kind of stupid. But hey, he showed the vaguest shred of decency. There's this weird intimate healing scene between them because Katara's injured. And he's like, I'm gonna fix your arm, but it's gonna hurt a lot. And she says, well, at least try not to enjoy it so much. Oh my god. And she thanks him. And he actually like smiles a little bit awkwardly. Yeah, and it's not smirk but he smiles and says you're welcome like whoa what is happening here so we get some internal blog about how Ozai has made huge progress in winning her over especially now that he saved her from getting sold off to slave traders he's like yep she has stockholm syndrome i guess i gotta use that to my advantage so you want more awkward insanity they're in the market the next day and she sees a big wanted poster for him and tells him you know maybe it's not a good idea to go there and he asks her why do you care if i get caught i like this part even though it's you know creepy as hell and he's like really weird and intimate with her and touches her and speaks with whoa tenderness for the first time and he actually calls her by her name instead of just saying like waterbender or girl or whatever and she's like oh 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 again i really do like the significance they place on him referring to her by name it's such a small thing but it's so intimate which makes it a wonderful manipulation tactic here he lets her then go off on her own and guys this creepy vendor is like Hey, you looking for something for your other half? Dude, she's 16. The age gap between them is ridiculous. He could be her father. You don't know that. And she's like, what? He's not my lover. And the guy says, to quote, The Earth Kingdom is full of secrets, my dear. And I'm afraid that's not one of them. But she buys a nice Fire Nation style dress. And this lends itself to another awkward scene. But we're not there yet. But first, oh shit. They've been caught and they make her run for it. And this is another interesting transitional scene in their relationship because she's thinking, this could be my rescue, but I don't know whose side I want to run to. They managed to escape, but it was, I feel like, on a wooden plank or something and he's injured. They managed to get to a cave where she heals him almost without a second thought, really. He has to be warm overnight, otherwise he'll freeze. So she puts her cloak over him because, you know, no way she's cuddling with him. But when she wakes up, they're spooning somehow because fuck you. And she's like, maybe I can creep away before he wakes up, but it doesn't work. And you love awkward parts because I do. He actually thanks her for saving his life of his own free will. Like, it takes a lot of effort for him to force the words out of his mouth, but he does it. She goes off to contemplate her situation, and she's like, you know what? My friends ain't coming for me. I know what to expect with Ozai now. I'm more or less comfortable around him, even though everything we do is uncomfortable. And fuck it, I admit, I have a crush on an evil ex-dictator. Fuck that. 
But wait, there's more discomfort. So, you wanted another bathing scene? Because there's another one. There is another one. So she's bathing in a river again, and she's like, you know what? My dress could really use a wash. This doesn't go down exactly how you think it's going to, but it's still really uncomfortable and sexual. She puts on her other dress that she got at the market, and apparently Ozai was watching her bathe in some capacity because he sees her and he's like, um, you know what that dress is, right? His actual wording confused me a little bit because he says, oh yes, it's a dress. The sort of dress worn in the Fire Nation meant to be seen by the eyes of one's lover only. This dress is a symbol for, how can I put this delicately, desire and intimacy, but Katara lays it the fuck out, and this is a quote, oh gods, you mean this is Fire Nation lingerie? <laughs> fuck me, I'm dead. <laughs> but he makes some very teasing comments, not really in a sexual way, he's just like, wow, you're sure trying to seduce me, first waking up in my arms and then buying laundry. She's very mortified, but then she's like, oh, what if he's teasing me because he likes me back? Straight people, am I right? And also she's not alarmed by his possible pedophilia for some reason, who knows why. But we get back to the squad, Genshi, the conjurer, is seeing this weird intimacy between them unfold in her vision, and Sokka's like, what do you see? And she's like, uh, he's like, is she okay? And she's just like, uh, she's, uh, she's fine. But then Aang awakens, and oh boy has this kid lost it. They tell him that they're hot on Katara's trail, and he's like, fuck her, I don't know her shit. Would it make him feel better to know that Katara is now about to cheat on Zuko with with Zuko's fucking dad? Like, not only is that the worst thing ever, and it would make Zuko die a thousand deaths, which is pretty good in revenge in my opinion, but he can be like, you know what, she turned out to be a hoe anyways. And he freaks out, and he's just like, I'm God, don't tell me what to do, and attacks them, and they have to restrain him. They have a little talk about what's wrong with Aang, and Kenshi talks about his evil aura, and like, yeah, he was such a good kid, what's got him? Fuck now, nah. I mean, it's like, it has to be cheated on, but he's totally lost his shit at this point. So they think it has to do with his little fun energy bending session with Ozai two years back, and how he may have absorbed some of his energy. Honestly, it's parallels like this that first off show how well this fic is written, at least compared to other fanfiction. Like, this is a real literary thing going on here. I don't really see parallels between characters like this in other fics. Like, that's the thing you see in real literature. But secondly, I do feel like this could have been highlighted and played off even more if they'd cut out Zutara and she goes straight from Aang to Ozai. Then, of course, you'd have to have a whole nother inciting incident, but I do feel like the beginning of this fic was pretty weak, relatively. And I think it would have been pretty cool if they really played up the parallels between them. So they decide that they're in no condition to fight Ozai, but they have to try anyways. <laughs> Zuko's having all these worries about all the horrible things that his dad's done to Katara. Oh, my child. You'd hate the truth even more. Poor baby. So we get back to Ozai and Katara's perspective, and he's just like, oh shit, it's the Avatar's bison. How the fuck they track us here? Which results in them climbing into this tight little cave that's not a reference to anyone's bodily orifices by the way they actually go into a cave they get into like another cool crystal cavern and it's kind of an unsettling place too and they get a little bit lost but there are weird like spirit creatures down there and now they have to escape those too meanwhile again she does have their location down but she still can't find them so everyone starts calling her a nut job and a fraud she's that's kind of that's rude. Like, she's doing her fucking best, and she told you that she wasn't very good at conjuring anymore. Like, y'all are just being assholes. So, 
our main duo hides in a little crevice. Again, not a euphemism for everything, like actually in a little crevice to wait out the weird spirit demons or whatever. Katara wants to play a get-to-know-you game. They have to do some icebreakers because they're going to be stuck in there for a while. We learned that she's been traveling with him now for three months, three whole months, and hardly knows shit about him. And he's like, fuck you, I'll tell you something you wish you didn't know about me, and unloads his daddy issues on her, and she starts crying. He's like, why are you, why are you crying? Like, don't cry for me, seriously, what the fuck? And she tells him that the past is over, he can let it go, even the good parts. He's not a firebender anymore, he's not the fire lord, they can start a new life, and she wants to be there with him. So here he realizes that his plan has succeeded, but he just feels kind of empty. He's not even like, oh yeah, I'm a manipulation master. Plus I get some sweet underage pussy. But then they start having a real angst fest down there, and she tells him about bloodbending and how it made her feel powerful, so they're alike in that regard, but she gave it up, and that was nice when she did that. So then, then... They've shed their demons, right? And they're just leaning closer and closer together. And they're about to kiss. And then Jakku, the evil spirit dude, just shows himself to lead them out of the cave. Like, okay. The first time I read this, I should have known there would be an almost kiss. Like, they weren't going to give it up that easy. They had to do a fake out. And, of course, I was like, oh, hell no. They can. They were going to do it. But, honestly, I'm, like, almost disappointed that they didn't. And y'all know how I feel about this pairing. And they don't exactly have a good relationship here. But the sexual tension's killing me, bro. Again, I was always like, what the fuck? I don't like having feelings. I'm a heartless killer. What the fuck is wrong with me? Shh, it's okay to be fond of someone and talk about your emotions. It's a healthy thing to do. But you know what's not healthy? When the person you're attracted to is a 16-year-old who you fucking kidnap. But Jakku leads them out of the cave and into some haunted mountains, through which they have to take a little detour to get to their final destination. But meanwhile, with the gang, Toph comes to Genshi alone that night, and she's like, Hey, uh... When you were telling us about your vision earlier, something seemed a little bit fucky to me, like you were hiding something, you, you want to talk? And Genshi's like, okay, you're not gonna like it, boo. So Genshi somehow shares her vision with Toph. So Toph somehow sees their little almost kiss, and she's like, oh god, uh, how the fuck are we gonna tell everyone? There's nothing I wouldn't do to uh, not be the one to tell Hakoda. Uh, he gonna lose his mind. Oh, and uh, fuck, I guess, I guess I gotta tell Zuko. And she's just like, hey Zuko, I got some news for you, buddy. And she said she's gonna tell him gently, but she's tough. She doesn't do gentle. And she's just like, yo, Spocky, your dad's fucking your girlfriend. And Zuko's just screaming on loop, basically. My god, this poor child cannot get a break. At least he doesn't have any new half-slimblings, because the bar is low. So the squad decides to pursue our two lovers. Is it too early to call them that? Whatever. Into the haunted mountains anyways, which Genshi's like real freaked out about. But Zuko's like, well, fuck you. We're kidnapping you so we can hunt down a kidnapper. Sokka's such an asshole to her, like, it's one thing to disbelieve her and encourage her to press on, but he's just mocking her any chance he gets throughout this whole section. Like, dude, seriously, are they even paying her to do this in the first place? Like, god, be nice to her at least if she's doing this for free. But the story behind the mountains that Ozai explains when we get back to his point of view is that people used to dump the elderly, the sick, and the unwanted, and so on, to die in them, and people would also go there to kill themselves. The author has explained that it is actually based off the suicide forest in Japan, Okigahara. You really get those creepy vibes from it, too, and things do get a bit trippy here. If you've ever uh, read The Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, which was one of my favorite series when I was younger, the setting kind of reminds me of the lake in Book 4 that was just heavily cursed, and the 
the main character Torak was just high key losing his mind like he was forgetting the names of animals and the people he knew or how to do basic survival things it just has this creepy but like deadly silent vibe to it it's very distinct from like a haunted house or anything because it's a creepy place in nature so i i like the tone of this whole section and it's also kind of a nice change of pace from the kind of nondescript wilderness they've been traveling through up to this point like katara goes to a pond to get some water and she sees a strange plant at the bottom like girl you're in a cursed mountain range why the fuck would you be like hmm, yes i have no idea what that thing could be why don't i drag it out of the water unless like ghosts are controlling her brain or something but i don't think they are uh it turns out to be a dead body so she's freaked the fuck out by this and she runs to Ozai, and he's just like it's a dead body. I don't see why it's such a big deal. Also, I'm never wrong about anything, and I'm perfect. She has a bad dream, and he actually soothes her when she wakes up crying. Like, bro, you've been mocking her all day, and suddenly, yeah, he's just like, oh, shh, it's gonna be okay, while, like, caressing her hair or something. She falls asleep in his arms, because fuck you, that's why. And they wake up, like, around the same time, and he's like, yeah, I'll just cuddle her for a minute longer. No one has to know about this. Also, she smells like water lilies, because I am one of those rare people who can describe the scent of another human being internally he's like mm, yeah that sweet underage pussy looking at her just waking up but for once probably for different reasons than we'd hope he thinks to himself you know i probably shouldn't fuck her he's finally convinced that the spirits and the curse of the mountains are real when she reveals a big ass claw mark on her arm and angrily she gets him to admit that he was wrong about the mountains not being hers he's still an asshole but i guess that's an improvement the narration describes her as being like a scared child which you know let's just drive it home how creepy this is and that he feels protective of her and i'd love to write this off as like some sort of paternal instincts kicking in like 18 years late for him but we all know that's not what it is and then there's some erotic miserable snow travel you have to believe me on this you can make a grueling trek through some haunted mountains erotic speaking of erotic guys this is it right here this is what we've been waiting for i guess uh it's chapter 26 out of 32 uh, so that was some nice slow burn there but it's time for that to end as we approach the climax of the plot which is preceded by Katara's climax, but that's still a few chapters away because they're taking it slow and not fucking right on the spot. So as you know, they are very cold, and what does that lend itself to? More cuddling, of course. Look, I'm gonna be honest here. I read a lot of porn for this show, and there's very little of it that I actually find, like, erotic, and this isn't even porn. They don't have sex or anything, but the way that this author describes their makeout scene... Guys, that's how you do it. All the shit I read is just pouring out plot, but I feel like the emotions present here really contribute to the quality. You can just feel the logging between them as they let their inhibitions go. Like, I bet you never thought I'd say that, especially about this pairing, but this author knows what she's doing. Like, who would have thought that being a good writer would make your writing better? Am I right, guys? But their makeout session ends when the spirits decide that they don't like this uncouth PDA in their fucking mountains, and they fuck off out of there. And what's worse is that there's, like, a figure off in the distance they notice that's been tracking them, and it's moving fast. So y'all remember this isn't supposed to work out in the end in the context of the story? Well, yeah, he's angsting now that she's still his hostage, and he has to give her up if he's gonna take over the world. It started off as pure manipulation, but yeah, he's caught some feelings so after another really erotic makeout session he angstily breaks away from her to remind her that yeah she's just the bait for his plan and she's like it doesn't have to be that way and he's like yes it does and she says to quote 
Maybe you are weak. Maybe your father was right about you. Oh, shit, savage. Damn. She's just asking to die, isn't she? She's just asking to die. And they're angry because they're straight people and he's a Ozai. So he doesn't know how to express his feelings in a healthy way. But he actually feels sorry for hurting her. Whoa, what do you know? character development. So the creature that was hunting them catches up that morning and they fight it, but it's already dead, so like, what are you gonna do? This isn't really important to the plot at all, and I think they just wanted to add in some more tension, even though it wasn't really necessary, but I do feel like it's kind of metaphorical in a way. Katara's freezes it solid and it disintegrates, and he asks her what she did exactly and she says that she purified it in a way and she rid it of darkness so she could rest in peace. I feel like she kind of does this to Ozai too. I've already kind of spoiled this and you know if you've listened to the What Are You Thinking series but things aren't supposed to work out between them and he dies in the end. She doesn't heal him with the power of love but she restored parts of him. He learned to love again and she was able to bring out the good in him but he isn't pure. The only way for him to be pure or the world to be pure really and for him to find true peace is for him to die. So I feel like he's kind of like the undead demon in that way. At the end of this chapter, the author does apologize for the makeout scene, maybe being a little much. Don't, don't apologize, because if you wrote porn, I would unironically read it, and I never unironically read fanfiction porn, or any porn really, or any fanfiction. But I just hope that you're not one of those people who uses weird body part euphemisms and calls a, a cock like manhood or something, or worse yet, uses the S word. Ugh. So shit is like super tense between them, but like at least they're getting out of the hell mountains. There's this scene where they're getting back to civilization and a guard tries to stop them, but Ozai just murders him on the spot. Slices his head clean fucking off without a second thought. And Katara's just like, right? He's like that. Forgot about that. Hmm. This is where they finally meet up with Jiao again, the guard from the beginning, and he sees them and he's like, My lord, you are here. Wow, you look terrible. Wait, wait, fuck, I didn't mean to say that. So Jiao has not done a very good job of doing whatever the fuck ambiguous thing he left in the beginning of the journey to do, but he does have some new information about the Avatar power stripping location, and it wasn't the place outlined by the MacGuffin, so I don't really get the point of that. It doesn't really explain how he figured all that stuff out anyways. But this real place is visible only on the night of the blood moon and conveniently there's a blood moon in only a few days. So a blood moon is basically just a lunar eclipse which I guess is way more common in the Avatar universe than a solar eclipse am I right guys? Even though Jiao says it occurs once every hundred years eclipses occur way more frequently than that here on earth but you can't see them from every part of the world and total ones aren't very frequent to be fair the timing of astrological events in the show was pretty convenient too like ah oh, yes this eclipse is in the right amount of days for us to be fully prepared for an invasion ah yes here's this comet that shows up every hundred years just after the chosen one trademark has finally mastered all of his abilities so angsty Ozai's angsty and he's decided now that they've gotten all settled in for the night that he wants to apologize to Katara who's very bitter and she accepts it I guess and they have another passionate makeout session but oh my god <laughs> guys Jiao comes in and he's like oh Fuck shit, fuck shit, I'm sorry, uh, fuck, I didn't mean to walk in on you doing that. <laughs> like, he's like, oh, I knew it was like, it was a lot of things, but I didn't know he was a pedophile too. My bad. But he is there to tell them, who is that in the sky? It's your old boy, Appa, and the squad has finally tracked them down to the locality. There is a conversation between Jiao and Katara one-on-one, -on -one, where he's like, wow, I was like, sure a bitch, because he won't 
fucking pay me yet so I can save my dying wife. See guys, the Fire Nation is America. Because not only do we think we're the best and we're disgusting imperialists and racist fucks, but our healthcare also sucks ass because I had to bust an evil dictator out of jail just to afford medicine for her and he isn't even gonna give me the money I need in time. Girl, he's a psychopath. He's just manipulating you. When that blood moon rises, waterbenders will become stronger. And you have to be ready to kick his ass if it comes to that. But she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He really loves me. So she goes to cuddle him, of course. And oh, he's not wearing a shirt. What else is he not wearing? But he's asleep. So she gets to be the big spoon. She's a little angsty because she doesn't know what his plans are. Because he keeps, you know, not telling her. And she asks, but he's like, it's complicated. Just wait. Try to trust me. This is when they wake up in the morning. And I'm going to read this excerpt because of the things that are implied. And we're going to break it down a little bit. Katara. Uzai's deep voice was soft, almost hushed. His fingers gripped her chin, turning her back to face him. I have no doubt that I can trust you. You've proven yourself more than worthy of that. But... It's complicated. Come tomorrow night. You'll know everything. Until then. His thumbs stroked along the rise of her cheekbone. Try to trust me. Katara wanted to. In fact, she couldn't think of any reason not to trust him. He had protected her and cared for her all this time and his words, while sometimes frustrating or insensitive, were always dripping with honesty, even when it hurt. Her eyes scoured his features, looking for any trace of deceit. All she found there was the warmth of his gaze and the shadow of a smile that she had come to know so well. She could get lost in those eyes eyes and the heat simmering there when he looked at her that way heat pooled in her chest she traced his mouth with her gaze a small sigh brushing past the gap of her lips as they must have written on her face because he leaned forward his breath fluttering on her lips before they pressed to hers helplessly she felt herself opening like a flower under his kiss and let her hands glide over the smooth skin of his chest and up to his neck this was different from the other times he kissed her slowly but deliberately with a heat that proved its own passion. He was saving her, and she reveled in the fire of his touch, his bare skin beneath her fingers. His chest pressed more firmly against hers as he rolled her gently to her back, tangling his legs with hers. Ozai's burning lips broke away to plant a kiss on her jaw, trailing kisses towards her neck. There was an electric charge as his lips brushed her ear. The sigh of his warm breath sent a tingle through her belly, and she hardly noticed how her fists balled up in his hair. Her breathing was growing heavier in a most undignified way, but she didn't care, and she didn't fight it. And as the wave of Euphoria Mountain, she let go and let it carry away. So clearly they had sex. It just cuts off right there, but they obviously had sex. Evidence. They never said that they wasn't wearing pants. We all know that he doesn't wear pants ever anyways. They are horizontal and their legs are tangled together. Uh, her fists are balled up in his hair. Her breathing was growing heavier in a most undignified way. Perhaps you could get like that from a really passionate and emotional makeout session, but you do not get a wave of mounting euphoria from kissing someone. 
she gives into it and it probably cuts there because she just blisses out. So what sort of sex was this? Did he eat her out or did he fuck her in the pussy? Well, if he fucked her in the pussy, then I sure hope that he gives protection. So I'm going to rule out vaginal sex simply because Ozai seems intelligent in this fic and he wouldn't risk that, probably. I personally think he ate her out because as you can see towards the ending, he starts working his way down her body a little bit and all the action is centered around what he's doing with his mouth. There's not really anything to indicate that he whipped out his dick. It's not like something ended her. It's just about her losing her shit over the stuff that he's doing with his mouth. Plus, I had this theory that I have way too many headcanons and shit about Ozai and his sexual abilities or whatever, but I have a theory that he's either, like, never given head in his life or he's really good at it with no in-between. So, I guess it's the latter in this one. But anyways, he ate her out. I rest my case. So, later, they're on a boat to the magical Avatar-stealing island. <laughs> and he still won't tell her what's going on. She's like, you can still change your mind. But even if you don't, it won't change the way I feel about you. So here's this exchange. This isn't about us. This is about justice. And I can't say any more than that. She cocked an eyebrow. What does that mean? Katara waited for an answer she knew would not come. Frowning, she turned away with a sigh. Her heart felt like it was shrinking. He didn't trust her. Not completely. Silence hung between them for a long moment before she finally spoke again. All right, listen, maybe this is something you have to do, something personal that you'd rather keep hidden, and I can understand that, but I'm asking you one more time. As the woman who... The words cut off in her throat, her eyes wide at the thought of them hanging in the balance. The guitar choked on a gasp and broke eye contact, working her gaze back to his meekly. His eyes were glued to her with an intensity that told her he already knew. The woman who what exactly? His eyes were creased with the shadow of smile. Go on. Finish the sentence. She blinked, hesitating, looking for it out. Her brows pinched together. Don't embarrass me as I already know, do I? The words came out smoky and hushed, sending a prickling heat down her belly. The corners of his mouth tugged up gently. Say it, Tara. She scrunched her eyes closed and drew a sigh, the words barely a breath as they rose so heavily from her chest. The woman who loves you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, step forward and cover her face, locking his lips with hers and kissing, both so tender and passionate, her knees almost buckled. But Jesus, man, he pulled her into him, off her helpless feet, and a sound pitched in the back of her throat, a soft moan into his mouth. He kissed her deeper than his tongue swimming lightly against hers. Katara clung to him like life itself, his coarse cloak in her small fists as she pressed herself into him. Because he was hers and she was his, she belonged with him. All too soon, he pulled away, leaving Katara's stomach reeling with, with desire. <laughs> Breathlessly, he rested his forehead on hers. The woman who loved me. The smile in his voice was contagious. She let herself melt in his arms. Your touch, your embrace, everything you are, blazes a fire through my soul. What can I do but to love you back, my waterbender? She smiled faintly but drew back, meeting his eyes with a soulful pleading. Then please let the past go so we can start over. Together, the glint in Ulea's eyes deepened as he ran a thong along her cheek. Just a few loose ends to tie up, and then we will. Wow. Okay. That was a scene. That was a thing that happened. 
who knew this man could be like romantic and seductive beyond just the physical level like he just improvised a love poem for her right on the spot and instead of saying you know i love you too or something generic like that like he could have bitches flinging themselves at him if he acted like this all the time i mean he probably already has bitches flinging themselves at him but more so like i'm secondhand seduced by this also katara you're not a woman you're still a girl and your new boyfriend's a pedophile just saying um don't mind me but Zuko, Sokka, Hakoda, and Aang who is still tied up in a sleeping bag succumbing to the bloodlust at last to catch up to Ozai after receiving a tip from someone in town that they see him boarding a boat they finally meet and Ozai is being a smug asshole as per usual like uh, Avatar it's been too long since we last met cause they're traveling on Alpha, but Zuko is like sup asshole and Ozai's like bitch why the fuck are you here but he gets over it quickly and starts mercilessly taunting him with how he stole his girl and Zuko can't control his temper and then Ozai starts taunting him over how he can still put him in his place even without fireheading and then Zuko goes off alone and he could hurry reunite and it does not go well he's like I'm here to rescue you and she's like bitch do I look like I need rescuing it took you like three months to get here and I'm fucking your dad now anyway so bye so then they collectively knock him unconscious and then the rest of the squad is like hmm what's taking Zuko so long so maybe y'all don't know about my weird fucking rare pair which is honestly the only ship in this fandom I have strong positive feelings about which I guess by default makes it my OTP which is the two dads yeah I ship the concept of Hokoda and Ozai like so hard honestly but in these Ozai Katara ones I am always so ready for when Hokoda threatens to slaughter Ozai's fucking pedophilic ass and now is no exception this is a gift this quote is a gift Koda pulled his club back threateningly his lip curling let go of her or spirit's helmet you'll spend the rest of your disgusting life wishing i had just killed you katara knew that look he wasn't bluffing she tried hard to swallow tell him dad Sokka yelled from behind him fuck uh. I need more interaction between the dads, even if it's them trying to kill each other instead of them being friends, perhaps lovers. But she does not return to Hakoda or anyone, but a look at Tang, and he's fucking possessed by Jakku, and he's ready to kill everyone. So here's when Katara actually learns what Osei's intentions with her were, and that he was using her as bait to get Aang to come after him so he could get his bending back. So Aang does that fucking creepy thing that he did like in the finale to Osei, like the whole, now you must pay the ultimate price thing before he unleashes his wrath or rather almost did but now he does it to Katara to basically call her a hoe <laughs> and then he loses control and begins to ascend while the elements whip around him and no one can hold him down so really the only thing they can do is for Ozai to do whatever it was that he was planning to do to Aang otherwise they're all fucked so Ozai starts energy bending the avatar-ness out of Aang and they both pass out and I'm just gonna read this excerpt because it's so incredibly angsty and hard-hitting Sokka looked at the others, then shook his head with a scoff. His brows drawn low. What's happened to you? The words scraped out. The guitar I know would never choose this. This monster over her own flesh and blood. Not one more step, I mean it. Katara slid into offensive position, her eyes blazing with the threat of her words. Go ahead, he barked. You think I'm backing down without a fight? I came this far to find my sister. I'm not leaving without her now. Sokka took a challenging step forward, his arm reaching out to her. With a sharp groan, Katara ripped every drop of water from the forest around her. She felt the trees and grass and foliage dry up wither to dust at her fingertips her eyes stung with hot tears as her lip quivered her teeth clenched and then shelling every fiber of her energy she blasted the torrent of water at those she had loved in a different time in a different life 
Fuck, dude. Fuck. Yeah, wow, okay. But if that wasn't wild enough for you, as he wakes up in the spirit world with Jakku, and now he's the Avatar, because... I don't know, that's how it works, I guess. I do have a lot of questions about the logic behind this, because draining someone of their power is one thing. Even draining them of their power and then taking it for yourself. But the Avatar is not just a set of abilities, it's its own being in a constant cycle of reincarnation. Wouldn't you have to be born as it, not become it partway through your life? Like, what happens to Aang? Is he no one now? Is he dead without the Avatar spirit? What happens to the original Ozai? Does he just get the bending without anything else? Does he get all of past Avatar's lives somehow, but retain his sense of self? Does he kind of become someone else? I'm very confused by this, but I overlook it for the most part because this is one hell of an ending, even though I feel like this whole idea was underemphasized in the plot and we hardly even talked about his plan or explained how any of this works. But anyways, Jakku wants to possess Ozai like he did with Aang, but Ozai's just like, bitch, I don't think so and then astral projects back into his body meanwhile Toph is trying to talk some sense into Katara while fighting her but it's not working very well she also refers to Ozai as Katara's sugar daddy I mean she's not wrong but rip rip in peace Ozai awakens and he's firebending again and Toph is like yeah what the fuck and he's like I'm the motherfucking avatar bitch and starts levitating and his eyes are like glowing and shit and apparently he can bend all the elements with no training and if you are Oh, maybe there's a happy ending. And I know I've spoiled it already, that there's not. Well, we're on the last chapter here, and it couldn't be more obvious that Ozai has regressed into utter depravity as Zuko awakens, and now he's trying to suck out Zuko's life force. Wow. But someone, like, stabs Ozai in time to save Zuko. This isn't explained, but it's kind of implied that it's Jiao, because there was this bit earlier where he left, and he was just like, well, my wife died because of you, and I'm not gonna help you anymore. In fact, fuck you, my lord. So, yeah, it was like dies at the end of this. I don't know. I feel like it works really well. A lot of people were upset by this ending, but I really like it. I think it made sense and it was justice. But we still have to wrap things up. People are recovering. Aang's going to be back to normal. We still have to get a conclusion between Zuko and Katara, and things are chill between them. Katara asks him if Ozai died, and he's like, yeah, he did. And he wants to ask her what went down between them, but he's like, you know what? Uh, never mind. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what happened there. But he still loves her, and the fic ends with them kissing like a new beginning. Dude. D- dude. Zuko. She fucked your dad. She fucked your dad. Like, she fucked your dad. Are you sure you're okay with that? She fucked. She fucked your dad. Are you are, are you really okay with that, bro? Wow. Wow. I know we're like, oh, Aang is a forgiving one, but, like, Zuko was really forgiving here, because, like, for his girl to fuck his dad, and then for him to take her back, that's, that's pretty insane, man. That's pretty insane. So that was the fic, and overall, I did enjoy this a lot, actually, and I'll start off talking about some things that I liked. This was well-written. It was easily one of the best full-length fics I've encountered. The author actually proofread her shit, which impresses me because the bar is just so low. She was able to capture tones and moods really well, and when she wrote about settings, it was aesthetic, and you can really get a vibe for the place. And I actually found the erotic parts to be erotic, which I can't say for many things. The character development was handled well. She was able to keep everyone pretty in character, 
slowly tweak things about them in believable ways. For example, I thought that Dark Aang was interesting. Like, he's wholesome as shit, and he's a good boy, but if your girl's fucking your best friend, it's okay to be pissed off. And that hatred grew, and it wasn't out of character either, because they were able to explain and develop it in such a way that we knew that it started off naturally, but it warped something out of his control, because Ozai's evil energy was imprinted on his soul from the energy bending, and then he got possessed by a demon, so, you know, you can't really blame him for that. Ozai was also an interesting case because he didn't get a redemption arc and he got what he deserved, which was death. Even though he turned out to be a fundamentally bad person, this author was able to explore what was a flat and one-dimensional character in canon while still keeping him in character to show that everyone's got some good inside them and no one's just plain evil. Yeah, he may be a pedophile, but he actually did care about her in a way that also proved that he wasn't a psychopath like the first ten or so chapters would have suggested. I would call this less of character development and rather label it as exploration, as I said, but it's similar enough for me to include in this little section, I guess. Plot, there was one, and I was happy about that, and the bar's low. <laughs> it was a nice streamlined plot, the action moved along quickly, and there weren't really any boring parts except maybe the beginning. The slow burn was paced nicely, a bit agonizing, but that's the best type of slow burn, let's be real here, and it lined up with events in the storyline very well. The whole ending sequence was pretty wild and intense, I liked that. The way their relationship was portrayed, how it ended, I've talked about this a lot throughout already, but I'm going to sum up again. The author likes this idea of the pairing and wanted to experiment with it, which, I mean, I hate the idea of this pairing, but I can respect wanting to mess around with some strange and unexplored concepts. As I've said, uh, what makes this so good to me, though, is that she knew that it wasn't going to end well. Teenage girl, evil dictator old enough to be your father, not exactly something you should be shipping. It started off with pure manipulation, which is another thing I found to be thought out and representative of Ozai's intelligence that he has here that he doesn't have in a lot of other fics, and the author knows that he brainwashed her until she got Stockholm Syndrome, pretty much. He did get genuine feelings, which I felt like was part of the exploration of his character rather than a you should totally ship this you guys sort of thing, because if he'd continued to purely manipulate her, this would have just been a dark fic, which could have been good also, but then it would have just been like abuse porn, and the way it was presented actually added a lot of depth to it, especially with his character and just the overall story. Him dying at the end said a lot to me. Like, he wasn't able to choose her and goodness over power. He was going to try to get both because he's, you know, a selfish, narcissistic fuck. It also subverts the turned good by the power of love trope and keeps things true to the expectations when you just take a look at this character on his own. And even though it was unhealthy and the author knew it, he never made un unwanted sexual advances on her. Take notes, Anna of the Moon. <laughs> things I didn't like... The first few chapters of the setup felt like it was going to be your average Zutara fic, and I wasn't hugely into the whole teen drama thing. I feel like the rest of the fic was able to stand out, but the beginning doesn't make you think that. But once you get past that, it gets better. On a similar note, I'm sure there could have been a more interesting intro, and I don't think the Zutara was necessary. Firstly, she leaves him for his dad, and that's just insanely awkward. Secondly, if she'd gone straight from Aang to Oza, I feel like that would have heightened the parallels between them as Aang descended into insanity and we got to see the little patches of light inside Ozai. Like I said, yeah, they didn't do a full role reversal. There were undoubtedly similarities that could have been developed and emphasized more if they just cut out the middleman and simplified things. Besides, both are bad, but having your girl leave you for your friend or having her leave you for your mortal enemy, I think I know which is worse. So Ozai's plan was also not developed very well. The author just tossed a MacGuffin in there. She mentioned it once before they actually even found it, like halfway through the fic, and then it just didn't come up again until New 
near the end when they started talking about the blood moon when Katara kept asking what he was hiding from her I was actually thinking to myself like I don't know I think he told you everything like this was really underemphasized to the point where I kind of forgot about it until he actually revealed it to her in the ending sequence and then it was never explained how Jiao like found out about the blood moon thing I get that character relationships were more of a focus in this fic but the MacGuffin was just so rarely mentioned even the concept ended up playing hugely into that last arc also would it even be possible to become the avatar partway into your life i don't know how the internal logic would work there there were some things about the progression of the relationship that bothered me it felt a little bit forced and manufactured in the beginning before he started actively manipulating her like when they were on the ship the part where he saves her from almost being raped felt kind of shoehorned in and in turn it made me so frustrated when she decided to save his sorry ass from drowning and then almost gave him mouth to mouth of course also there were some wildly uncomfortable moments but i guess it was okay because the author did that on purpose and the characters were also super uncomfortable that was really the point so yes this may be my no tp but if you write any pairing in the right way it can at least be interesting and at best something like this with multiple layers of depth something that goes beyond shipping to make a statement about human nature like professional high quality literature does i would honestly recommend this as long as you don't end up writing fic of them having children together after you read it <laughs> uh, i know i've said that like multiple times throughout this review and you're like haha i want you guys thought because you're so funny but no i'm not kidding but yeah, this fic, good command of the English language, good exploration of character emotions and relationships, self-awareness, and there was a streamlined plot that cut the fat out and built into a pretty wild ending. And for sure, yeah, this has its flaws, but it's worthwhile. And I think the good outweighs the bad and the overarching themes like really did it for me. And yeah, I like this a lot. So today we covered Electrify by Please Call Me Cordelia. The Bar is Low is on Instagram. You can find us at Bar is Low with an underscore in between each word. That's our profile. You follow us so you know what's coming up next. I'm your pal, Wenshikis Thodakis. This is The Bar is Low. Thank you for joining me, and that's all for today.